Thanks for listening to the weekly teaching podcast for City Church in Knoxville, Tennessee. It is our desire to be a Jesus-centered family on mission. If you live here in Knoxville or are ever visiting the area, we'd love to have you with us at one of our Sunday gatherings. You can find out more at citychurchknox.com. If you're interested in giving financially to help us reach more people in our city, you can give easily at citychurchknox.com give. And finally, if this teaching is helpful to you in any way, we'd love to hear about it. You can email us at info at citychurchknox.com. With that being said, here's this week's teaching. Well, good to see everybody this morning. Uh, If you have been around the past few weeks uh, here on Sunday, you know that we have been working through a series all about uh, God's design for our gender. Uh, You know that particularly the past two weeks, we've been teasing out this big picture idea from the Bible that men and women are both equal in value and worth before God, but also that they are distinct. They're different from one another in significant ways. And, And as we've said repeatedly, at this point, those ideas are not necessarily easy to hold in tension with one another, uh, but they are both beautiful, intentional realities designed by the God of the universe. So with that established, last week, Eric was up here and he walked us through what we might call an operational definition of biblical masculinity. He said that being a man, biblically speaking, looks like questioning masculine stereotypes, recognizing sinful tendencies of men and curbing every interest and inclination towards Christ-likeness. That, I think, at least sums up what the Bible calls men to do. So this week, just as a spoiler, we are going to take that same operational definition, that same outline that he used, and we're going to apply it to femininity. We're going to talk some about what it means to do that as a woman, as a follower of Jesus. Now, maybe it sounds odd to you that we are using the same definition for femininity as we used for masculinity. But remember, according to the Bible, men and women are both equal and distinct, so, so when we define masculinity and femininity, it would make sense that the definitions would be similar to each other in their overall structure and also distinct in their specifics. And so that's going to be the case this morning. Our outline is the same as last week, but our content within that outline will be quite different from last week. Now, Real quickly, before we begin, on the topic of content, we have a lot of content for you this morning, Uh, maybe even a little bit too much, some would say. Uh, So we are going to do our best this morning not to waste words. Uh, We're going to cover a lot of ground. We're going to reference a lot of different places in the Bible, but for time's sake, we're not going to put every single verse that we reference up on the screen for you. But if you want to follow up on what we talk about, if you want to want us to show our work or anything like that, you can actually go online where we post the sermon every single week. There's a readable PDF, and pretty much every verse, every passage that we reference this morning will be in the footnotes of that PDF. So feel free to do that uh, once it's posted later today. Does that sound good? Okay. Now, with all of that said, let me acknowledge the elephant in the room. This teaching is predominantly about women. I am not a woman. Nor do I have much personal experience in biblical femininity. Now, I regularly study the Bible, so I feel like I've gained some amount of ability to teach what it teaches, but still, when it comes to the practical aspects of being feminine, I am lacking some personal experience that could be helpful to you guys. So, I have invited someone to teach with me this week who does have some experience... 
who does have some experience in femininity, my lovely wife, Anna. So, Anna, correct me if I'm wrong here. Absolutely. Stop it. You guys are going to make her tear up before we even start. I I cry all the time. I've got a (laughs) tissue just in case. It's fine. So, Anna, correct me if I'm wrong here, but you are actually a self-proclaimed expert in being a woman. Am I right? I am a self-proclaimed expert in a lot of things, um, but definitely being a woman, for sure. That is true. Confidence has never been a particular struggle for my wife. Not even a little bit. Not uh, even a little bit. So why don't you start us off this morning by just telling people a little bit about you personally, but then specifically about some of your experience as a woman in Christian environments. Yeah. So um, it is true. My name is Anna, and I am Kent's wife. Um, those that know me well, just to get to know me a little bit, might describe my personality as um, maximalism, like more is more. And uh, that just, I feel like, really sums up who I am as a person. But I grew up around the church, and then I did my undergraduate degree at a small Christian university. Um, And then I did something incredibly practical with my Bible degree, which is to do nothing with it and to go to cosmetology school to become a hairstylist. So that is what I do now, full time. Um... But Kent and I got married 10 years ago, um, which is crazy. And even though I never wanted to be married to a pastor, which is a different story for a different time, I am incredibly thankful to get to do this life with him and with you guys. Um, and I'm really thankful to get to be here this morning. So tell you a little bit about my story. So I grew up both in a large Baptist church and went to Bible college. So between those two, um, I've heard a lot of discussions and teachings on what it looks like or what it means to be a godly woman um, just throughout my throughout my years. Um, and when I look back, especially like on my teenage years, it feels like a lot of the teaching that I heard on femininity was really one-dimensional. So it was this one particular kind of mold sorry, uh, that all women were meant to fit into, and there wasn't a lot of room for variation within that mold. And sadly, that mold also ends up being pretty specific to, like, white, middle-class, upper, upper-middle-class version of femininity. Um, but that takes a little more time to unpack than we have uh, today. But because of that mold, there were a lot of times, that, especially because of my personality, um, remember I said maximalism earlier, I felt like I was just too, too much or too loud or uh, my personality was too big um, and I wasn't gentle or quiet enough to portray biblical womanhood. Um, and then at the Christian college I attended, I think there was a lot of immediate pressure, um, maybe some of you Johnson students feel this, to find the person that you're going to marry and then figure out what you want to do in the little bit of time before you settle down and have kids with that person. Um, so it was kind of assumed that that, like getting married and having kids, was the peak female experience. Um, so anything outside of that felt really secondary. And sometimes that emphasis gets reinforced when churches feel like they cater exclusively to the nuclear family um, or when married women are bombarded with questions about when they're going to start a family. Um, And when we operate as if marriage means we've made it, uh, we end up treating single women as if they're living some sort of lesser existence because they're single. Um, And I also, I feel like over the years, got the impression that women should yield their voices to those of the men in the room and only ever share wisdom or ideas if asked. Um, Sometimes it feels like women are only asked to serve, so to do childcare or to host or to provide snacks, even though we do make really great snacks, I will say. But, like, even for me personally, 
Uh, when people find out that I'm married to a pastor, people ask all the time if I am the choir director or the children's minister. And uh, I hate to tell them this, but I cannot sing. And uh, I have ADHD and would be terrible at any job that requires organization. So I always am like, no, everyone would leave and that wouldn't be great. So um, anyway, so I, but I would imagine as women, especially if we grew up in some proximity to the church, we've heard or felt some of the effects of those stereotypes. So some of us have probably heard even more stereotypes along those same lines. Um, sometimes they're communicated to us explicitly, but then sometimes they're communicated to us subtly um, or inexplicitly. And here's the thing. As Eric mentioned last week, one of the first things that we need to do as followers of Jesus is to understand where those stereotypes are coming from and decide whether or not they're biblical expectations. So all of this sort of leads us into our first component of biblical femininity that I referenced earlier that we're kind of borrowing from last week's teaching, which is questioning feminine stereotypes. That's the first thing we need to do. The, the first thing we have to do when it comes to understanding what it means to be feminine is learn to question the stereotypes that we're given, whether those stereotypes and expectations are coming from inside the church or outside the church. And, and here's why it matters that we do this. Uh, this is Romans 12. This one we actually will put up on the screen. It says, do not conform to the pattern of this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. So when, when we approach all aspects of our lives, uh, including our understanding of gender, we don't just want to take the stereotypes that the world gives us and create these sort of sterilized Christian versions of those stereotypes. That, according to Romans 12, would be us conforming to the pattern of this world. Instead, what we want to do as followers of Jesus is we want to be transformed. We want to be changed into something refreshingly different from the world around us. And that happens, according to Romans, by renewing our minds. Renewing our minds on the good news of Jesus as laid out for us in the scriptures. So what I want us to do is practice doing just that, questioning feminine stereotypes stereotypes with some of the stereotypes and expectations that Anna brought up just a moment ago. So let's start with one of the first ones that she mentioned, this belief by some that women should be gentle and quiet. That's the language that sometimes gets used. Now, that language, gentle and quiet, is at least based on a verse from the Bible. So in 1 Peter chapter 3, Peter says that a woman should embody, quote, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. Now, many modern readers hear verses like that, and, and I think we tend to bristle a little bit because it, it sounds to us at first reading like Peter is just saying that he like wants women to sit down and shut up or something like that. That's what it feels like to us if we don't really dig into the passage much. But this is why it's so important that we work to read the Bible as it was meant to be read, as the authors intended it, and not just as we tend to read it on the surface. Very important that we learn to do that as followers of Jesus. For instance, because if you do just a little bit of digging on that phrase, gentle and quiet spirit from 1 Peter 3, you'll discover that that word gentle is used three other times in the New Testament. Two of those times, it describes Jesus himself, who was obviously a man, not a woman. 
The other time, it is used by Jesus to describe the type of life that is blessed by God in the Sermon on the Mount, whether it's embodied by a man or a woman. The word quiet that Peter uses in chapter 3 is also used in 1 Timothy to describe the types of lives that all followers of Jesus should live, whether they are male or female. So apparently in 1 Peter 3, the point isn't that women should be gentle and quiet and men should be strong and loud or something like that. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that women should make the most important and notable thing about them be that they embody the Christ-like character that all of us are actually called to have as followers of Jesus. So being gentle and quiet has very little to do with whether you are extroverted or introverted or outgoing or reserved or whatever the case may be, has very little to do with your personality. It has everything to do with having a Christ-like character. So practically speaking, it may be that some women need to grow in having more of a gentle and quiet spirit. It may also be that some of us men need to grow in having a gentle and quiet spirit. In fact, go ahead and put my name down on that list. I think more days than not, I could grow in gentleness and quietness. As as my wife will affirm. There you go. Harsh but fair. I like it. Yeah. Um, So it, it may be that some of us men need to grow in it. But listen, none of us need to grow in that because of our gender. We need to grow in that because that's what Jesus was like and that's what he calls his followers to be like. Do you hear the difference there? That's what 1 Peter 3 is aiming to communicate towards women. Um, So let's look at another stereotype that I mentioned earlier. Um, The one that talks about how the only way to embody biblical femininity is to become a wife or to become a mother. Um, So the Bible is very clear. Desiring those things, marriage and children, it's not wrong. Um, But both of those are gifts from God, so definitely not a wrong desire. Um, But according to the Bible, singleness is also a gift from God. Um, It says that singleness is a beautiful way to embody and further the kingdom. Um, Now, obviously, that can be incredibly difficult to hear in a culture where we've often been told that romantic fulfillment is the only way to be happy. Um, But that means that this is another area, area where we need to be... No, see, I knew I was going to do this. We need to be... Transformed, not conformed. Man, those are really hard to mix up. Very similar words. Very similar words. Easy to switch them around. Yeah. So even in that same vein, becoming a mother is not a mark of what it means to be significant in the kingdom of God. Women regularly play vital roles in the story of the Bible in ways that have nothing to do with them being a mother. Um, so people like Deborah or Esther or Rahab or the prophetess Anna, Mary Magdalene, women were the first ones to announce that Jesus was raised from the dead which I feel like is a pretty big deal. Um, Even people like Priscilla and Lydia, all of these women and more were used mightily by God in ways completely unrelated to them having kids. Um, Not to mention all of the times in the Bible that God walks deeply and profoundly with women who are struggling with infertility. So I know this is slightly different too, but like Eric said last week, Jesus, who's the person literally at the center of our faith, did not get married and did not have kids. And Paul, who wrote half the New Testament, was single with no kids. So my point is, some women contribute to the kingdom by getting married and or having kids. But let's not reduce all of womanhood down to that. Let's not reduce all of biblical femininity down to those things. Getting married and having kids can be beautiful expressions of femininity.
but they're not the only expressions of it, and they're certainly not measures of it. And so those things don't make me or you more feminine. What makes us feminine is that God created us as image bearers who are women. And being a wife and a mom doesn't grant you that status, nor does not being those things take it away. So hear me say this. Your image-bearing status as a woman was given to you by the creator, and it can't be taken away. Yeah. Absolutely. I'm like, it's great. I don't even want to do my part next because I feel like you... Um, yeah, so let, let's do one other one before we move on to the next section. Um, this one is a little bit more big picture of an understanding, um, but I wonder if a lot of the stereotypes that get perpetuated about women, especially in the church, are connected to this belief that, that women are meant to be helpers. I don't know if you've ever heard that language before. Sometimes it gets thrown around a lot in Christian circles, uh, that women are, are meant to be helpers. Now, the Bible does say that God created Eve to be a helper to Adam. That's Genesis chapter 2. But I think some people hear that term helper, and they hear it as implying that women are somehow less than or inferior to men. And, and I don't think that's what Genesis 2 is saying at all. So the word helper in Hebrew, particularly in Genesis chapter 2, is, is the word azer. Uh, it carries the connotation of one person or one entity lending assistance or aid to another one. So think of times where one country sends food or supplies or military aid to another country that needs it. That is them being an azer to the other country in need. Uh, frequently in the Bible, the word azer, that same exact word, is actually used to describe God himself. So in the Psalms, anytime you read a Psalm where it says that God is our help and our deliverer or our help and our shield, that word help is always the word azer. Same word as Genesis 2 when describing Eve. And surely in the Psalms, the psalmist isn't intending to communicate that God is inferior to us simply because he's our helper. In those usages, it actually means that God has more strength than us, but that he is inclined by his nature to lend and impart that strength to us because of who he is. That's what it means to be an Azer. So, so I actually think one really helpful way to interpret that word Azer in the Hebrew would be something like the phrase empowering strength, empowering strength. I think that's what it means for God to be our Azer. He's our empowering strength in times where we need it. And I think that's one thing that women were actually created by God to be is an empowering strength to anyone and everyone. They have the opportunity to be that too. Whether that is to a husband or a friend of hers or to her kids or to other followers of Jesus in her life group, whatever the case may be, whatever the relationship is, she has been given this inherent strength by God and she has the ability to impart that strength to others in a way that emboldens and empowers them as a result. That's what it means to be an Azair. Yeah, I'll give a quick example of this. Um, so when I found out that I was going to be giving this teaching right now uh, with Kent today, and I was mildly freaking out because I have never done this before, um, the first person I called was my best friend. Uh, I, I sent her a Marco Polo, and I was like, listen, I'm losing it. And she was so quick to 
encourage and provide wisdom and just really be an Azair to me. Um, when I was stressing out about the things that I wanted to communicate and how I wanted to say things that I felt like were going to be helpful and healing to the women in our church, I, I had a whole team of women that <laughs> I reached out to when I was I mean, even just like the women in my life who prayed over me this morning and who texted me today and just, see, it's going to happen. We got it together. We got it together. Like that, they are, is theirs to me. The reason that I'm sitting up here is because of them and the Lord, but also because of them and the, that ability that he's created in us as women. So they're the ones who I often call when I feel overwhelmed or discouraged or frustrated. They have this incredible ability to speak those truths that I need to hear. They challenge me and they push me and they encourage me. They are an empowering strength to me. And, and I'll add too, uh, Anna has been an empowering strength to me more times than I can name over the past 10 plus years. Uh, countless times where I am exhausted or life is just beating me down or I am in a difficult pastoral season in our church and Anna has been able to say just the right thing to me at just the right time that puts strength in my bones to keep going and I think God created her as a woman with the ability to do that and I'll just add there are ways that she does that uniquely because she's a woman in ways that I don't know if men in my life can do in the same way. This is one of the many reasons that we need both men and women created in the image of God, and we need to understand the ways that men and women reflect the image of God to a world in need. So, in summary, yes, women were indeed created by God to be helpers, but that doesn't make them less than or inferior to men. It gives them an absolutely vital role to play in furthering God's kingdom and in showing the world what God is like. And truthfully, we could go on with addressing various stereotypes and expectations of women uh, because there are plenty more where the three of those came from. I'm sure you guys are well aware of that. But I think you guys are getting the gist of what we're doing here. Anytime that we come across particular ideas like these, expectations and stereotypes like these, we need to ask ourselves, is that from the Bible? And even if it is, quote, from the Bible, as we've seen today, we need to ask, is that actually what the Bible was intending to communicate there? Or is that a cultural misinterpretation of what the Bible says? This is important in how we hear stereotypes about women, but it's also important in what we communicate to women about what the expectations are of them. I think we have to be so careful, particularly within the church, that we are not laying heavy burdens on women that the Bible never actually puts on them. Following Jesus is difficult enough as it is. We do not need to add more difficulty to it unnecessarily. The first component of biblical femininity looks like learning to question those feminine stereotypes that we see inside the church and outside the church. The second component that we'll talk about that we borrowed from last week is that we need to be able to recognize sinful tendencies. Recognizing sinful tendencies. Yeah. Wow, we're really doing this. I love it. Um, so ladies in the room, part of embracing biblical femininity is acknowledging sinful tendencies that we can be especially prone to as women, even when it's not fun. Ultimately, this is the call on all of us as believers to consider areas where we're weak and ask that God would help us become more like him. Um, so the scriptures point out at least a couple of things that on the whole women can struggle with more consistently than men. 
Now, like Eric said last week, it's not to say that every single woman struggles with these things, nor does it mean that men never struggle with them. It just means that there are things that we should keep an eye out for. So I'll go ahead and warn you. Um, the two that I'm going to bring up this morning uh, are going to make us roll, or might, might make us roll our eyes a little bit, um, mostly because we've heard them before or because a past church has really harped on them unhelpfully. Um, but at the same time, I don't think that means that we should just ignore the warnings that the Bible lays out. So we're going to look at a couple of simple tendencies that we may want to be on guard against. Um, so for the first one, I'll pull from Proverbs 31, 1 Timothy 2, and 1 Peter 3. So I'll start with Proverbs, and these will be on the screen too. Um, so speaking to women, it says, Charm is deceptive and beauty is fleeting, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. And then here's 1 Timothy 2. Um, I also want the women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, adorning themselves not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. And then there's 1 Peter 3 that we mentioned earlier. Um, your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. So like I just mentioned, we might be inclined to scoff at these passages because churches have sometimes harped on these unhelpfully. Um, but the reality is that women can be overly conscious of their appearance. So even just looking at the numbers, this is kind of hard to argue with. The global beauty industry uh, is valued at $532 billion, which I did not know. Um, would you like to know how much of that market is devoted to products for men? Less than 1%. <laughs> So that's like a little bit more than just like a margin of error, right? Um, women can be a little more focused on their appearance than men are. And Paul would say that's something we should be aware of and just make sure it's something that doesn't become a fixation or an obsession. Um, now with that said, don't hear what these verses are not saying. They're not saying that if you spend time or money on your appearance or your hair or your jewelry or buying clothes or whatever, you're automatically in sin and need to repent. Uh, just as a reminder, I work in the beauty industry. Um, I do people's hair for a living. That's my job. Um, and I wouldn't be in that profession if I thought it was inherently sinful for women to spend time or money on their appearance or changing up their hairstyle. Um, all scripture is saying is that we as women should be spending just as much time and energy, if not more, on growing our character. So I really think it's worth asking the question, why do I care so much about my appearance? Uh, that's part of Peter's point in that last passage. So he says our focus should be on having that gentle and quiet Christ-like spirit. Um, when you look at the Greek for that phrase, it means being steady or settled due to a divinely inspired calmness. Um, and the truth is, the reality is that our outward appearance cannot give us the same inner calmness that Jesus can. Um, now, maybe you aren't the woman that spends a ton of time on her hair and makeup every day. You don't obsess over your appearance, um, but you do tend to obsess about other things. So things like your personality or your stage of life or your insecurities. This passage still applies to you. Um, so the Lord is wanting us to have peace in him, a peace that gives us confidence to be who we are as image bearers. Um, or put another way, the Lord wants Christ-likeness to change us from the inside out. So instead of hoping that what we address on the outside will eventually change or conceal what's on the inside. So it matters significantly less what we're wearing or projecting on the outside. What matters is our character. So 
I think that's a warning that it would at least be good for us as women to consider. So it'd be good to ask how much time do we give to improving, enhancing, or fixating on our appearance? How much time do we as women spend obsessing over or warring with or despising our bodies? How much effort do we put into the, the image that we pre present or project to others when what's most vital, just like we said, is our character? So some of that energy <laughs> could be better spent remembering who we are in Jesus. So remembering who Jesus is and who he's made us to be and how to let that be the thing that's most notable, most outstanding about us. To me, that's at least, at least worth reflecting on. So I'll round it all off with this, at least this section. Um, ladies, when it comes to our bodies, uh, I think we all know that time and gravity are going to come for all of us. Like, this is, not, this is not a surprise. Like, we can try to fight it or delay it, um, but I would hate it if we let our appearance become more important to us than a lifetime of growing to become more like Jesus. So one of those things is here for a moment, and then it's gone. The other one is going to last forever and impact the other people for the better. The other people? Just other people. Any other people? For the better. All right. Are y'all still with me? I've always wanted to say that. Kent says that all the time, and I'm always like, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> that was too much. It's fine. Are you still with me? <laughs> Great. I love it. This is so fun. This is so much fun. Okay. Let's do one more. Um, so one more thing that the scriptures bring up when it comes to sinful tendencies. Um, this one will come from... First Timothy, as well as Titus. Um, and these will also be on the screen. So, in the same way, the women are to be worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, but temperate and trustworthy in everything. Um, and then Titus 2.3 says, Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. So, Another tendency that women can struggle with is using our words to talk about or tear down others. I've noticed this in communities that I've been a part of. Um, we all love the latest gossip. We all love the tea. Am I right? I'm like, who, who doesn't, right? But I think all of that can take a really ugly turn. Um, and let me help you see where I think this comes from. Earlier we said that women are created to be an empowering strength. Our ability to encourage and speak strength into others and empower them can be a really incredible gift. But that strength can be a double-edged sword because it can easily be used to tear each other down and put people in their place instead of building each other up. So we as women can be incredibly funny and very quick-witted. But if you pair that with a sharp tongue, all of that can easily be at the expense of others. So when we see women doing things we would never do, it's really easy to mutter about that with our friends. Or especially when we see women doing things we wish we could do if we had the same abilities or confidence as they do. Um, that can make us talk about them even more. So there are literally hundreds of memes about friends judging other people together on the internet. Um, and sometimes it's easy for us to make a joke or a jab at somebody else's expense to hide our own insecurities. Um, so, for example, if someone at work is better at their job than you are, or you feel like some other mom is doing a better job momming than you are, or if a guy you like is showing attention to another woman instead of you, what is your first response? Is it to vent about them to others, to go to your friends and be like, ugh, these people? Or is it to encourage... I don't know why I said that. <laughs> or is it to encourage them and then take your insecurities to Jesus? Hurting other people isn't going to fix what's off and what's, what we feel about ourselves. Only Jesus can do that. So we as women need to be on guard against this. We need to always ask, are we using our strength to empower others and build each other up? 
or are we using our strength to overpower others and tear people down? Now, before we move on to the last section, let me reiterate. Even if it makes us a little bit uncomfortable, I think it's still beneficial for us to at least consider the biblical guidance here given to women and ask the Holy Spirit to help us examine ourselves and see if there's any of these areas that we need to repent. And I'll just chime in here real quickly and say this. Uh, If you're a man in the room and you are inclined to put too much stock in your appearance or expensive clothing or anything like that, just so we're clear, you don't get a free pass on this just because these verses are written to women, (laughs) okay? Uh, The book of James uh, actually has some really strong things to say to anybody who cares too much about their gold and silver or their expensive clothing, regardless of their gender. Uh, Ephesians 4 specifically has some, some plenty to say, really, about how unhealthy it is for men or women to give in to malicious talk and tearing down others with our words. So if we as men are guilty of these things, we get to repent too alongside our sisters. But we did feel like these warnings from the scriptures towards women were worth us pointing out. That said, on to the last component of biblical femininity, which is curbing every interest and inclination towards Christ-likeness. So this one we'll do fairly quickly because we've covered a lot of things this morning. Um, But as you read through the New Testament, you notice that most of the positive commands given to women, all all of the things that we're called to do or to be, have a basis in Christ-likeness. So we're told to be gentle, which is also an attribute of Jesus. We're told to have a quiet spirit, which should be an attribute of all believers. We're called to be helpers, which is a role God himself plays. Women are called to have self-control, which is part of the fruit of the spirit. So there's a pattern, right? It seems like the scriptures want us as women to curb every inclination we have, good, bad, or morally neutral, towards Christ-likeness. That's the goal. And as cheesy as they were, those WWJD bracelets really had it right, right? (laughs) Like, when in doubt, try to be like Jesus, and you've got it. Um, But the goal is to take our unique and distinct wiring as women and as individuals and aim all of that towards building and furthering the kingdom of God. We as women have a vital role to play in all of that, and we're called to participate in it. So we're going to get really practical for a bit about what that could look like. So... Let's say you're in the room and you are a single woman. So as we said earlier, that is a valid and beautiful, valuable way to express your femininity, whether that singleness is just for now or for your whole life. So what does it look like for you as a woman to aim your singleness towards Christ-likeness? Because the world has a version of singleness too, right? To the world, singleness is just like complete unfettered freedom, right? You're not tied down to anything or anyone or any place. You do you. Travel the world. Go buy a villa in Tuscany on a whim. Eat, pray, love. Like, have a good time, right? Oh, that got real shrill. But what if instead you viewed your singleness as an opportunity to be deeply rooted in a place? What if you saw it as an ability to commit to a group of women or to a church where you could be known and loved and where you could become who God created you to be? What if you used your singleness to give your life away to help countless other people become who God created them to be? I think we get to be heirs to each other in that way. If you're single, you get to be an heir to other people in that way. Um, so what if your singleness wasn't about having every experience in the world you could possibly have for your own sake, but about showing off to the world the satisfying nature of a vibrant relationship with Jesus and showing off that he's enough no matter what? 
or um, if you're a woman with kids in the room or who wants or plans to have kids. Um, again, that's also a really great way to embody biblical femininity. But the question is still, what does it look like to curb that role towards Christ-likeness, towards the kingdom? So what if instead of viewing our kids as little trophies to make us feel better about ourselves, which really only works like 25% of the time, if we're being honest. Um, what if instead we saw parenting as an opportunity to transform those little lives with the gospel? What if instead of using our kids as an excuse to avoid time with other believers, we included them in our rhythms of community so they see the beauty of doing life together? Instead of needing our kids to give us our worth or our value or our identity, what if we were so confident of our identity in Jesus that we could pour ourselves out into those children? So what if we could do that in such a way that when they become adults, they have become so full of gospel satisfaction that they're sent out to change their communities and their workplaces and their families in return? And then even if you're a woman in the workplace, what does it look like to curb that arena of life towards Christ-likeness? So instead of looking to your job for your worth or your significance, which I'm often guilty of doing, what if we were so confident of those things in Jesus that when we showed up to work every day, we're just ready to contribute to the greater good of the world through our work, ready to serve others and empower others and strengthen others around us in such a way that they can become who they were meant to be. All right, we're almost done. Finally, um, if you are a woman in the room and you are struggling for any reason at all, uh, maybe with some of what we've talked about in regards to biblical femininity, um, maybe with something altogether different, um, if that's you, I want you to hear me say, you are loved and valued and cherished by God. That's true of you right now. I think most of us know those things but have a really hard time believing them. Um, he didn't make a mistake with us. He didn't mess up. And more important, he's not indifferent to the ways that we struggle. Um, he's very aware. And if there is anything that we learn in Scripture over and over again, it's that God walks deeply with those who are struggling, with those who are hurting. Um, and even like with, with those who are struggling with their sense of self or their sense of worth and value especially, um, to prove that he put on flesh and he came to earth to walk with us through it all. So whatever you're going through, it's not too big for him. It's not too big to walk through it with him. He's good, and we can trust him. Um, can I just say, I, I love my wife so much. Has, I, I pray this has been helpful um, for the women in our church. Um, I wasn't planning on saying this, but I, uh, kind of the reason we wanted to do this teaching, and, and really this series as a whole, um, one of the reasons was that we recognize um, that sometimes, unfortunately, the church can be a difficult place to be a woman. Um, I mean, you can see that in headlines. You can see a lot of you have that as a personal experience that you could speak to. Um, I, I hate that that has happened, and we are very committed here at City Church to, to charting a different course forward. And I, I don't think we're going to do that perfectly. I'm sure we fail in that in dozens and dozens of ways. Um, but the reason that we wanted to talk about this and the reason we wanted to do this series is because we want to kind of instill what the scriptures teach in all of us so that we can chart a better course forward. And, and we believe that, that the Bible is our best authority for how to do that because the Bible values women and speaks highly of women 
and speaks life into women. And so our hope is that we've done at least a little bit of that this morning, and our prayer is that we continue doing that as a church um, for each other throughout the years together. Um, so with that said, uh, in just a moment, uh, we're going to have the opportunity to go to the tables like we do every week uh, and take communion. And when we do that, uh, we are remembering everything that Anna just laid out for us. We're remembering that Jesus has given us a better identity to live out of and into through the life, death, and resurrection. Uh, Men and women alike, that identity is true of us if and when we have trusted in Jesus. And so we go to the tables as a community to remind ourselves that this whole thing, becoming the men and women that God created us to be, this whole thing is a community endeavor. It's a communal endeavor. We need each other in this journey. And that's what we're going to be talking about for the rest of the series. That's where we wanted to land today. And so we approach the table today to celebrate Jesus and to ask for the Spirit's help with all of that as a community. So uh, I'm going to ask Anna if she would just pray uh, over the women uh, in our church, over the women in the room, um, and then we will respond by worshiping and taking communion together.